0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 and we're going to look at verses 1 to 11 this morning. Uh, if you know of Bobby Fisher, Bobby Fisher was a famous chess player, one of the arguably one of the greatest chess players that has ever lived. He learned to play chess uh, when he was six years old. And he did that by uh, reading the instructions in a chess set that he purchased from a candy store that was below his family's Brooklyn apartment and just happened to stumble upon it. At age seven, he started playing chess seriously and joined the Brooklyn Chess Club and actually was so uh, amazing that he started to receive personal instruction by uh, the president of that chess club. And then at age 13, he won the United States Junior Chess Championship. And at age 14, he won the U.S. Chess Championship becoming the youngest uh, player in in, the, in American history to ever win. In 1963 and 64, he mowed over the competition with an 11-0 victory, the only perfect score in the history of the tournament at that time, and one of the only a handful of perfect scores in high-level chess ever up to that point. He's best known, and you probably, uh, those of you who are a little bit... Um, more mature, would probably remember that he is, uh, in 1972, he had a big international battle with Russian champion Boris Spassky, and he defeated this reigning world champion to become the first American to hold that title uh, in the history of competitive chess. So we we know Bobby Fischer was a chess prodigy. He had a natural ability that really was unparalleled in his day or any day, And the thing, I think, that set Fisher apart from the rest of the field was his ability to see 5, 10, even 15 moves ahead of his opponents. He and others like him, who are uh, very skilled in chess, and I am not among those people, (laughs) have the capacity to visualize the consequences of um, every potential variation, every move they make on the board, and then to make decisions on strategically how to press press on and move forward. Fisher never walked through a chess match thinking only of the next move. I think that's where my problem is, personally. He was never indifferent to what the consequences of such a move would be. He always considered what the the fallout would be from every move on the chessboard. And I think that's instructive for us in Christ Church. I think as believers, we would do well to exercise, particularly those of us who have the privilege and the responsibility of preaching and teaching and, and uh, in theo- in, in doing the work of theology in, in, a, in a publishing context, those who preach and teach would do well to have a Bobby Fisher-like mindset when it comes to the message of the gospel and considering the consequences. Two, three, four moves out from any... Um, tampering with or abridgment of the Word of God. Uh, Temptations to round off the hard edges of Scripture, where it speaks of God's absolute holiness and man's utter sinfulness or Christ's uh, complete exclusivity, those those hard edges are difficult for us to round, you know, it's easy to round those things off when unbelievers mock the scriptures, when unbelievers belittle the scriptures and dismiss the Savior. And uh, that was a temptation, that's a temptation now, and it was a very much a temptation in the first century. In fact, some of the greatest temptations to um, abridge or to compromise doctrinally uh, came to the church in those early decades and centuries Of its existence. And one such attack took place in Corinth. And that is what we are reading and studying through as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it came to revolve around the content of the gospel. What was the message of the gospel? There was confusion in Corinth surrounding the gospel itself, particularly as it relates to the resurrection of the dead. There was a faction. Of people, there were a faction of people in the Corinthian church who'd either come to doubt or had outright denied that a literal bodily resurrection from the dead awaits both the righteous and the wicked at the end of the age. However, they, these Corinthians, like a bad chess player, failed to consider the logical consequences that such a premise carried. In doubting, or even more troubling, denying the resurrection, Of the dead, they simply didn't consider two, three, four moves down the line as to what that would entail, how such an idea would impugn the integrity of the gospel itself and destroy the credibility of our Christian faith. And so, as Paul draws this massive letter to a close, he graciously reiterates reasons and reminds us that the integrity of the gospel message and really the foundation, the validity of our Christian faith hinges on the truthfulness of the resurrection. And therefore, we must affirm it, we must proclaim it, and I think this is the application, we must anchor our hope in it. And so I just want to read the opening 11 verses where Paul kind of begins in chapter 15 In verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So as Paul sets sail here in verses 1 to 11, these verses function as Paul's sort of opening salvo, his opening statement in this chapter. And it is going to be one, this chapter we know it as, and it is, one of the most thorough and rich treatments of the resurrection that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. There were some in their midst who questioned that there is a resurrection to come when God's salvation purposes for humanity reach their appointed end. And in order to show them why holding such a position is contrary to sound doctrine, and really is in conflict with the faith they profess, he begins here in verses 1 to 11 by reminding them of the common ground that we all stand upon, both he and they and us, and that we hold to by the grace of God. I want you to think about these opening 11 verses as the foundation stones, if you will, of all that is to come. It is the they are the foundation stones upon which Paul is going to construct an argument, and it is a very precise, well thought out argument in this chapter. And the resurrection, the argument is this: the resurrection is essential to the gospel. The resurrection is essential to the gospel, and that to deny that resurrection of the body is to remove, it is to excise the very heart out of our Christian faith. So God's grace then in this section, particularly verses 1 to 11, God's grace, his unmerited favor, is the hero of these first 11 verses. We see God's grace in the truth of the gospel itself, of Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection for our sins. We see the grace of God in his... The testimony that he gave to hundreds of eyewitnesses of his resurrection glory. And lastly, we see the transformation, the grace of God and the transformation of Saul of Tarsus, who was, you know, persecutor of the church, turned into Paul, the apostle, preacher to the nations. So Paul right and his name means the little one paul the little one just like he did in chapter 4 verses 8 to 13 he capitalizes on our lowliness to exalt the grace of god towards sinners in these verses and it's from this common ground these these foundation stones that he is going to reason with us throughout the chapter that god has that excuse me that the church has always believed and always confessed The resurrection of the body. And so we're going to break the text down into three sections this morning. We'll see them in verses 1 to 4. We'll see the truth of the gospel. In verses 5 to 7, we'll see the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And again, in verses 8 to 11, we'll see the transformation of the Apostle Paul. So the the truth of the gospel, the testimony of the eyewitnesses, and thirdly, the transformation of the Apostle Paul. Now we're going to begin in verses 1 to 4 with the truth of the gospel. We see the grace of God put on full display in verses one to four in the truth of the gospel message itself. Paul, um, and he says, in just to look at these opening verses, he says, now I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Paul begins where our Christian life begins, right? By In preaching the good news and its reception in the good soil of our hearts that is prepared beforehand by God himself. Now, it's interesting to note here, and it's worth making a comment about, that when he says, I make known to you, or some variation of that, this is actually a gentle rebuke. He is confronting them. You could translate it, he says, I would have you know, or the CSB says it this way, and I think this is helpful. Now, I want to make clear for you. In other words, Paul's not simply reminding them or us of the gospel as if somehow we'd just forgotten it. What he's saying here, and, and this is what he means by what he says, is that they understood and believed the message, but they didn't fully appreciate what that entailed, what that meant. And so he says, I want to make it clear to you what it is that we believe. And so, and, and we know that because of what he says. In the last part of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, he says, I want to make known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, and by which also you are saved. In other words, they they had understood the gospel content. They had received it. They, They were presently taking their stand in it. And God's saving purposes were being brought to completion in them as he writes to them. They obviously then recognized the gospel was important. They understood the gospel was was essential, even if some of them did not fully grasp and wrap their minds around all that that meant, all that that entailed. And I think by way of just simple application It's a good reminder for all of us, particularly those who are more mature in the faith, that you don't have to have a firm grasp of all the nuances of every doctrine to be a believer. Near the end of his life, William J. visited John Newton. We all know John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace, slave trader who became a pastor and and, and hymn, hymn writer and just very famous. William J. visited John Newton on his deathbed, and Newton was was so close to death, and he is recorded as saying to Jay, My memory is nearly gone. He says, But I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I mean, you, you see, it's not the quality of our faith that saves us, it is the power of the Savior who we have put our faith in. And I mean, you think about all the things you didn't know when you came to Christ. Just think about that for a second. All the things you didn't know, all the things you didn't understand, all the things that you didn't even know were wrong, and yet you were truly born anew. By the grace of God, you could affirm in your heart of hearts that you were a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And that was enough. That was enough. And in some ways, that is kind of what's going on in Corinth. He calls them brethren here, brothers and sisters in Christ. He affirms that they heard the news from his mouth and received it for what it really was. It wasn't the words of men, but as Paul says of the Thessalonians, as for what it really was, the word of God. They were standing in it and they were being saved by it, being kept by the power of God. So, in a sense, they were themselves living, breathing trophies of God's grace, God's resurrection power, which they, ironically, were casting doubt upon, the very power that was saving them. They Were the strongest evidence of God's grace having put their trust in Jesus Christ as the risen Savior and Lord, even though they didn't really understand all that that meant. The only caveat, the only kind of caution he gives at the end of verse 2 is this He says, unless, or excuse me, unless you believed in vain, Uh, you know, presuming you hold fast the word that I preached to you. This all assumes that that they are going to continue in the faith, in the gospel word which Paul had preached. Obviously, no work of conversion has happened in a soul where they make a superficial kind of external, I don't know, commitment to Christ, but then don't continue in that and never return to it. Uh, But our continuing on in faith, even if that faith is weak and feeble, is the surest evidence that God has brought us from death to life. That God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That he's changed us from children of wrath, as 1 John 3 1 says, into being children of God. Our continuation in those things is the evidence of that. And how does God do that? How does God take us from one to the other? It is through the foolishness of the message preached. That's what he said back in chapter one, and and the the very message that Paul summarizes for us in verses and rehearses for us in verses three and four, he says, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." Paul says out of the gate that the gospel is uppermost; it is of first importance. You get the gospel wrong, it doesn't really matter what else you get right. If you get the gospel wrong, you have lost everything else, which means you and I have a responsibility, a stewardship entrusted to us to get the gospel right. That's what Paul did, and that's what we must do. Notice he says he delivered to them what he also received. Paul didn't fabricate the message he preached. It wasn't his message. He simply passed on what he had received at the hands of others. This very much, verses 3 and 4, uh, the beginning of verse 3, is um, very much creedal language. It's confessional language. This is Paul handing down song, sound doctrine, faithfully summarized by God's people, from, and he's handing it down from one generation to the next. That's the picture here. Paul's understanding of the gospel was not his own. It wasn't unique to him. It was the common possession of the church which he accurately proclaimed to them and to all who would listen when he went from city to city from place to from town to town. Paul was a steward. He was an ambassador for Christ. You know, he wasn't back in the kitchen like a chef making the food. He was a server delivering what had already been prepared for him by God. And it's the same for us. We are stewards. We are stewards of the mysteries of Christ. And it is required of stewards, we learned in chapter 4, that one be found trustworthy. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. We must get the gospel right and deliver the message that we have received to others accurately and completely. What is that message? Well, in summary form, That first, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. See, the cross is at the heart of the gospel. You can't get away from it. The faithful stewardship of the gospel makes plain that God is holy, that you and I as human beings are utterly sinful to the core, and that Jesus Christ died upon a cross to make atonement for our sin and to reconcile sinners to God. So no human effort is enough. No religious performance or duties are enough. No Christian upbringing will ever get you to heaven. Is never enough to cleanse us from sin's corruption. Only God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, was powerful enough, capable enough, and frankly, loving enough that, he, that while we were yet sinners, Romans says, he died for us. Romans 5 verse 6 says that while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or to put it in the terms of Galatians, Christ redeemed us from, a, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was mocked and scourged. He was humiliated. He was crucified and left to die like a dog on the side of the road. And he was the sinless son of God. And he did that for you and for me. Not only did Christ die for our sins, he says he was buried. The early church had no doubts that Jesus truly died. It is recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he was laid in the grave. These words verify the reality of Christ atoning death, it emphasizes that a dead corpse was laid in the grave, which underscores the fact that the resurrection which followed is to be objectively recognized as a genuine, you know, resurrection. It was not some spiritual phenomenon. And so he makes, he goes out of his way in reciting this kind of summary of the gospel to point out that not only did Christ die for our sins, but that he was buried. And thirdly, this creedal summary of the gospel reiterates that the sinless Son of God, who died and was buried, was raised on the third day. So from burial, he moves to resurrection. If Christ died and he was buried, then the resurrection must have been a reanimation of a corpse from the dead. It was a real Resurrection, and it's. uh, He says here, he was raised, which in the original language is in the perfect tense in the passive voice, which tells us two important things. First, it puts the stress on the activity of the Father in raising the Son. It is His stamp of approval on His sacrifice. He is, as Romans says, raised to be the power, uh, proven to be the Son of God, raised in power. And secondly. The fact that he was raised, it draws attention to the permanent state of that past action. In other words, it sets before us with probably the greatest emphasis that that there's continuing results to that past event. Christ has been raised and presently continues to this day as the risen Lord. And so we don't venerate and follow after a religious martyr. As followers of Christ, we worship and serve a risen Savior. Every part of that message, Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection are essential to the gospel. They are of first importance. And so without that message, we don't have a Christian faith. It was a life-giving message that they heard and received, stood in and held fast to, and it's a life-giving message that you and I hear and receive. And I pray, stand in and hold fast to as well. It is God's, these opening verses are God's grace to wayward sinners packaged up in four tiny little verses. But we also see the grace of God in verses 5 to 7 in the testimony of the eyewitnesses. The testimony of the eyewitnesses. He says he was buried and raised on the third day, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So God's grace, his unmerited favor isn't just seen in Christ's death and resurrection, but in his resurrection power, triumphant and on display for literally hundreds of eyewitnesses in the 40 days that followed. And Paul gives us a a list of these resurrection appearances, which are by no means, you know, exhaustive. This isn't all of them, but it's certainly sufficient. He says he appeared to Cephas, which is just the Aramaic name, uh, given to the Apostle Peter. This resurrection appearance is likely recorded for us in Luke 24, in reference in verse 34 of Luke 24. You say, why does he mention Peter? Well, it's hard to be dogmatic, but it seems that the Lord in his grace and mercy wanted to bring comfort and assurance to Peter because he denied Christ in the most, at the worst time and failed in the most spectacular way and I imagine was saddled with incredible guilt. And he wanted him to have comfort, assurance, and divine pardon. That though he had denied him three times, his sin had been pardoned. He goes on to say that he appeared to the twelve, which is clearly kind of a general term to refer to the disciples. But it obviously it doesn't refer to Judas. He wasn't there anymore. And if it's referring to, if he's referring to the um, appearance at the end of the resurrection Sunday, in Luke twenty four, uh, Thomas wasn't there either that time until later. So the use of the term the twelve here is kind of a is a clear indication that the early church viewed this as kind of a, a title for the special group of those individuals whom Jesus called to be with him, in Mark three and verse fourteen. So, so he refers to the the kind of individuals that that. Traveled in and communed with Christ in kind of the most personal way. He says he also appeared to the more than five hundred brethren at the same time. And we don't know exactly when this was. It's hard. You know, it's really hard to some speculation that it maybe was around the end of uh, his ministry before his or end of his uh, resurrection time before his ascension. But we don't have a, a specific thing that we can claim to here. But. The reference is important because on no other occasion could such a large number of people testify to the fact of Jesus' resurrection, that he was truly raised from the dead. Notice Paul says that most of them were still alive. Why does he mention that? Well, it shows the confidence he has in the reality of what took place. It shows that, that he and anyone else could easily appeal to these folks' testimony if they needed to. They could be questioned, these individuals. The the fact of the matter could be corroborated. There was no question in his mind. Lastly, he says he appeared to James and to all the apostles with a little a. This is almost certainly a reference to his appearance to Jesus' half-brother James, the one who wrote the book of James. It's likely that this very appearance was what led him to conversion and through him to that of his brothers. Remember, during Christ's earthly ministry, they did not believe upon him. John's gospel records for us in John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. They were mocking him. They did not think he was who he claimed to be. But you fast forward to Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, and we find all of them among the ranks of the believers. What else accounts for this sudden change but a resurrection appearance? And so, Paul's point in bringing these up seems emphatic. The resurrection of Christ from the dead was not a spiritual resurrection. It was a literal bodily resurrection, and just as he was truly dead and buried, so he was truly raised from the dead bodily and seen by a large number of witnesses on a variety of occasions. But I think there's a bigger implication that magnifies the grace of God in these verses, and that it's this. Even those who failed him, even those whose faith was weak, those whose hearts were broken, even those who were his sworn adversaries like his brothers, even they will see the risen Savior and be welcomed into his fellowship. God didn't have to do it this way, but he did. And in so doing, he comforted the afflicted, he encouraged the faint-hearted, he helped the weak, and even at times, in his brother, his half-brother, admonished the unruly. Just a powerful testimony to the grace of God. Lastly, we see the grace of God in the transformation of the Apostle Paul. We've seen it in the truth of the gospel, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. In verses 8 to 11, we see the grace of God and the transformation of Paul. Look at verse 8. He says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus, resurrected Lord, appeared to me also. He puts his vision of the risen Christ on the Damascus road on the same level as the other resurrection appearances. He sees himself as the last in line of those who have seen the risen Savior. He calls himself one untimely born. That's a nice, pleasant way to say what it means in the original language. He says, I was like a miscarriage. That's the term. It's a graphic term. This is a strong and unexpected Kind of turn of a phrase by Paul. It points to the fact that though the twelve had been with Jesus for years, Paul, on the other hand, was born again and thrust into the ranks of apostleship suddenly without coming to a full term in a way that one would normally expect. He didn't walk with Christ and commune with Christ and see, and, and learn at his feet like the disciples did and like any follower of a of a uh, a leader would, you know, any leader would expect his followers to do. The emphasis then is on the abnormality and the almost freakishness of the process by which he was thrust into apostleship. He goes on in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul never forgot who he was before Christ. He never lost sight of how God plucked him from the pit of hell and set him on a path toward changing the world. And, and verse 9 is, is emphatic. The personal pronoun, I, at the beginning draws attention to the greatness and the condescension of Christ. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. The risen Lord appeared even to Paul, the least of of them, What Paul means is that in his rebellion, in his self-righteousness, in his unbelief, he was the least of all. He was in no way dignified to become one of Christ's sent out ones. And this statement points out two realities, verse 9 does. The one is the high honor Paul rightly attached to his position as an apostle. It was a big deal. To be counted as an apostle was to occupy the highest office in the church, and Paul was truly an apostle in the fullest sense because Christ commissioned him to the task. But it also highlights his profound sense of personal unworthiness. He understood who he was. Like he says to Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. He he was not worthy, he says, to be called an apostle because he had actually persecuted the church, and by extension, Christ himself. And so why does Paul then find himself this lowly, unworthy, unviable monster of a man? Why does he find himself occupying the highest office in Christ's church? Verse 10 tells us, for no other reason than the sheer grace of God. He says, I, by the grace of God. I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain but I labored even more than all of them yet not I but the grace of God with me. Paul gives all the credit for what he's done in this his Christian life he attributes it all to the grace of God. It was grace alone that transformed him from a persecutor into a preacher. Were it not for the grace of God, he would never have appeared before the Corinthian church. He would never have gone to them preaching the gospel. He never would have, he never would have discipled them and pastored them like he did for 18 months. He never would have written them and followed up with them and continued to visit with them as he did throughout his life and ministry. He says it's all God's grace. It's all grace. Does that mean that Paul just kind of coasted through life while God poured blessing into his lap? No. God's grace lit a fire in his soul and it caused him to work harder, he says, than all of them. You could maybe translate it, all of them put together. And of course, he's speaking hyperbolically, but he, he, his, word, his word worked. Excuse me, this word worked means to labor to the point of weariness. It harkens back to the joyful pride of the skilled craftsman. Paul labored hard to discharge his responsibility as an apostle. He doesn't say that he accomplished more. Maybe he did. But he worked harder than others. Through his life, Christ, it was clear to him that his life before Christ was a one-way ticket to hell. Just self-righteousness, self effort, and yet the grace of God had arrested him and enabled him to accomplish more than perhaps any other apostle in terms of breadth and theological depth of gospel influence. But he says, I did all that, but if perchance anyone was ever tempted to heap credit on Paul, and we do, and rightfully so, he immediately adds, yet not I. It wasn't me. It was not I, But Christ with me. It's not the man, Paul, but the grace of God with the man that was effective. And the way he speaks about it, the the, uh, prepositions are very intentional. He speaks about God's grace as with him, not in him. It it was with him. It's almost like grace is a co laborer working alongside Paul, and therefore the credit doesn't belong to Paul, it belongs to, to God and God alone. And I think this is something we need to take to heart. God's grace isn't license for spiritual laziness. It is liberty for spiritual laboring. Your and my intense labors for Christ, for the gospel and the building up of the body are not ultimately compensation for or reimbursement to God for his grace. We're not paying God back. But they are themselves the evidence of that very grace at work in us. So even though exertion is a response to grace, striving is a response to grace, it is more properly seen as an effect of grace. So you work, and I work, and we sacrifice, and we battle against the flesh. And in our working, in our sacrifice, and in our warring against the flesh, the grace of God is at work in us, and so all is of grace. Nothing is deserved. We don't ever get to pat ourselves on the back. Good job, Jeff. You were super righteous today. Our entire Christian existence hinges on the grace of God. And that's his point as he comes to the end in Verse 11. Everything hinges on the resurrection. And the other apostles who preached that message, whether it was him or them, they handed that down to us through the ages. And verse 11 it says, So whether it was I or they preaching about this grace in which we stand in hope, so we preach and so you believed. He says, this is what you believe. This is what you affirm. This is the, this is the common ground we're standing on. And so he says, What he's going to say as he gets into verse 12 and following is to deny the resurrection of the body is to call into question the resurrection of Christ, which is to be out of step with all who truly believe upon Christ, including, he says, you who already have affirmed these things. It is in effect to deny the resurrection. It has the effect, even if unintentional, of insulting the spirit of grace, as Hebrews says. The Baptist Catechism, published in 1689, is a summary of biblical doctrine organized in a kind of question and answer format to instruct Christians, believers in their faith. And the question five famously reads, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? How do we know it's really God's word and true? And the answer that the um, catechism gives is threefold. First, he says, the Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, and its power to convert sinners and edify saints. I think there's a striking parallel, and I don't think that's why they organize it this way, but I think it's a striking parallel in that answer to the outline of our text this morning. The heavenliness of its doctrine refers to the fact that the teachings of Scripture, and particularly the gospel of grace, are of such a character that they cannot be explained by human imagination or intuition they they bear the marks of the supernatural no human mind would dream up a doctrine of total depravity that consigns them and everyone else to eternal judgment no man would conceptualize a plan of salvation where a crucified and risen savior would be the one the only one who do, would accomplish a once for all atonement for sin for his sworn enemies And no natural man would fabricate the idea that this salvation be graciously applied to that sinner wholly on the basis of faith, nullifying human effort. It just wouldn't happen. And so the heaviness of his doctrine kind of corresponds with the truth of the gospel. Secondly, the unity of its parts speaks to the way all scripture points to Christ. Acts 10 and verse 43 says, to him all the prophets bear witness. And in the same way, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection testify with unified voice that he was crucified, that he was truly buried, and he truly rose from the dead on the third day. We know that because he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to some 500 brethren at once, and even to his unbelieving half-brother. And they would go on to affirm the truthfulness that he was indeed the Son of God. Raised in power. And the third line in that answer is its power to convert sinners and edify saints. That is the inescapable reality of the Apostle Paul's biography. He who was a persecutor of the brethren was transformed into a preacher to the nations. He who was a scoffer turned into a servant of the Most High God. A terrorist transformed into a teacher of the Gentiles, authoring nearly half the books of the New Testament. I mean, such is the glory and the majesty of the grace of God towards sinners. And that is the grace we preach. And by that grace, we have believed. And in that grace, we have made our stand. And this is the common ground that we who have come to Jesus rest on. And it is the bedrock upon which Paul's teaching about the resurrection in the rest of this chapter will be built and established. He says, you believe this. You've received this. Now, let me help you understand the implications of all of that before you run off saying there is no resurrection and we'll look at that next time. Let's pray, Lord. Indeed, the grace of God is all we have. We have nothing, nothing to, the cross. I bring. We we come, Lord, with empty hands. All we bring is our wickedness, our sin, our failure, our inability, our rebellion. And you, in your kindness, in your undeserved favor, shower us with grace. Upon grace, that's the message that we proclaim. And Lord, and I pray that that would be that reminder would wash over our hearts this morning. Help us to give thanks to you, help us to labor with freedom, knowing that it's not to earn your favor or to repay you for what you've done, but out of a sense of gratitude and thankfulness and zeal for God that we serve you and love you and and give our lives away for the gospel. Or may we be a church marked out by that. May we be like Paul, who work harder than all of them, and yet it's not us, but the grace of God within us. Lord, I thank you for the grace that I see evident in so many hearts and lives within our church. I pray that that would be all the more clear in the days ahead. And through this Christmas season, Lord, you know, the resurrection is, is very much connected to the Incarnation. There is a future hope that we have. You have been raised that one day we, long with, with, we, we look with open hearts that long for that day when you will come back and all will be made new. So, Lord, be with us as we sing our final song of praise to you and, and as we go out from this place. Well, Again, if you if you have any questions about the gospel, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, um, anything that you have heard sung or taught, or or even just inferred, and as you've re- read the scriptures with us this morning, please don't leave without asking. Please don't leave without making it known. Um, we'd be happy to open up the Word of God and and explain these things in greater detail and and help you um, understand that you can walk out of this this uh, little building this morning with confidence that uh, the grace of God has broken through the darkness of your heart and your life, and that you can be called a child of God and no longer a child of wrath. He's made that possible, and it's all by His grace, and so we'd love to to share that with you this morning. And I hope you'll stick around for our fellowship time uh, and just enjoy the the communion we have one with another. Um, Greet one another, encourage each other, pray for one another, and, uh, and again, we'll uh, gather together again next Lord's Day and look at these uh, verses in verses uh, 12 to 19 where Paul begins to lay out his argument for the power uh, of the truthfulness and the implications of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us and your love for sinners. If it weren't for that, Lord, we would all be lost. We thank you for the work that the gospel's doing in hearts and lives, just hearing testimonies of how your word is penetrating dark hearts and drawing them close to you. Lord, even hearing about that this morning, about family members and friends and individuals who are asking questions and thinking about these things. And we pray that through this Christmas season, not just us, but others who are preaching that true gospel message, that they would be faithful to herald the good news like we sung this morning. And, uh, and draw, that you would draw hearts to yourself. Lord, bless us as we go out from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.